Welcome to the Real Python Podcast. This is episode 191. How do you manage the dependencies of a large scale data science project? How do you migrate that project from a laptop to cloud infrastructure or utilize GPUs and in multiple instances in parallel? This week on the show, Savin Goyle returns to discuss the updates to the open source framework Metaflow. Savin briefly describes the Metaflow platform and the goal of simplifying engineering overhead for data scientists and programmers. We discuss how the platform captures snapshots of a project as you work, allowing you to go back in time or share the state of your project with another team member. We dig into the complicated process of managing dependencies for machine learning and data science projects. Savin describes how the required external libraries can be specified within a flow with the new at PyPI or at Conda decorators. This allows a project to scale from a local machine to the cloud or multiple instances with all dependencies included. He talks about starting a new company, Outer Bounds, with fellow coworkers from Netflix. Their vision is to continue to build the Metaflow open source platform and offer customers scalable enterprise-grade infrastructure. This episode is sponsored by Intel, providing Edge AI reference kits. Are you building AI apps with popular models like YOLO V8 or PADM? If so, check out intel.com slash edgeai to get open source code snippets and helpful guides. Just go to intel.com slash edgeai. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, Savin, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back, Christopher. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you about, well, lots of little changes and updates to Metaflow. I thought maybe we could start talking a little bit about what's been happening with you. Uh, you were working at Netflix when we talked last, and it sounds like uh, you've been able to take advantage of some of this work that you're doing with Metaflow and uh, expand a little bit here. So do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. I think when we last spoke about Metaflow, we had recently open sourced the project at that particular moment. As you can imagine, throughout the early innings of the pandemic, there's considerable digitization that happened all across the board. Organizations' appetite to invest in data efforts or ML efforts that increased substantially and that naturally led to uh, an uptick in the take rate for our project as well. We had plenty of companies uh, that started using Metaflow in non-trivial use cases, and that presented itself an opportunity to make it something bigger than what it was. So then me, alongside a few of my colleagues at Netflix, we decided that right now is a good time to spin out of Netflix, uh, start a company that's focused on the development and continuation of Metaflow. And here we are. That's great. Netflix is still involved. They're still using a lot of the stuff that happens inside there. It seems to be a, a still a, a prized project within the, that organization. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely seems to be the case. The team that's responsible for Metaflow internally at Netflix that has only grown ever since my departure. Uh, we collaborate very closely with them. Many of the features that you see getting shipped out in open source, good work from the team back there. So yeah, happy and excellent partners for us. Oh, that's great. Awesome. Do you want to talk a little bit about what Outer Bounds does? Mm-hmm. Yeah. At Outerbounds, our vision is to build a platform that can take care of all your data science, ML, and AI needs. Uh, in many ways, that was the charter that we had back at Netflix as well. But now you can imagine in any large company, you are basically standing on the shoulders of the giants. Of course, we were responsible for building ML infrastructure for Netflix, but we were standing on top of all the good work that other platform engineering teams at Netflix were doing, uh, teams that were responsible for provisioning the data platform, the compute platform, teams that were managing the workflow orchestrators, uh, teams focused on observability, and so on and so forth. And you can imagine now if you look at other companies outside of, let's say, the FANG ecosystem as well, what's common between Netflix and all of these other companies is that predominantly all of these companies also run similar-ish infrastructure yeah. as what Netflix runs, uh, thanks to the fact that Netflix is on the public cloud, right? And I think that was one of the big reasons why uh, Metaflow has seen uh, a lot of successful adoption in all of these rather sort of like scaled-out companies. But that also presented an interesting challenge because then many of these companies, many of these organizations are also trying to figure out how do we create a compute platform for machine learning? How do we think about data platform for ML? And with Outerbounds, we are trying to solve all of those problems as well. So Outerbounds, the product uh, that we are building, uh, basically provisions a compute platform, a data platform, workflow orchestrators, a full observability stack uh, for an organization that's interested in investing in the latest and greatest ML tooling. And all of that is then bundled uh, with Metaflow as sort of like the user experience layer that data scientists interact with. Yeah. I could see the, <laughs> having talked about all of the different components mm-hmm. involved in this process, how having the ability to get them under one sort of uh, shingle would be uh, advantageous to somebody looking at it. Um, I, I've been talking a lot about the compliance <laughs> mm-hmm. in some organizations. Uh, we talked about that when we talked about a uh, Python inside of Excel Mm -hmm. and how Microsoft, you know, the the compliance is already sort of done in in a lot of cases for these big organizations and so forth. So I can kind of see some advantages there. So that's really cool. Yeah. What we could do maybe briefly, if people hadn't listened to episode 61, which really they should have by now, just kidding. (laughs) They could go back and uh, learn a lot about the the fundamentals of the platform. And obviously we're going to talk about it and kind of talk about what's changed and what's improved and all the things that have happened the last two and a half years sort of uh, intersecting with our conversation here. Gosh, the AI, how how much that's changed this environment and also just how this stuff has sort of exploded as far as like, you know, what's needed Mm -hmm. and having a tool like Metaflow being useful. There was a really great talk you did. I forget the exact title, Human Friendly... Human-friendly, production-ready data science with Metaflow, and this is at SciPy in 2022. So I'll include a link to that, which is, a, again, a good 
like grounding if somebody would like a, a video kind of showing you what's going on. And I really enjoyed the questions and answers that you did at the end there. But maybe you could kind of briefly, you know, get people's feet wet if they've never heard of Metaflow and what's going on there. And we'll kind of get them up to speed. And then we'll start talking about some new functionality. Sure. Yeah. Happy, happy to do that. So Metaflow at its core is a machine learning platform. So we started building Metaflow back at Netflix in 2018, and it was geared to serve the needs of data scientists. As you can imagine, in any organization that is looking at reaping the fruits of machine learning or AI these days, there are two barriers of complexity that a data scientist needs to cross. So one is complexity around uh, just data science, yeah. right? What data assets do you have available? How do you think about translating a business problem into a data science problem? What machine learning training frameworks are you using? If you are doing any kind of feature engineering, then how would you want to do that? If you are thinking about neural networks, what sort of like is the thought process? So there's an entire sort of like complex landscape on that front. And these are the conversations that data scientists always have at lunch and are talking to exactly. each other about. <laughs> exactly, right? I mean, data scientists are very motivated to tackle uh, these problems. That's the part of the job that they really enjoy doing. And then there is the reality of operating within an organization and delivering actual business value where you also need to interface with internal business systems. You also need to interface with complex engineering systems. Uh, if you have to train a large-scale model, and you figure out that, okay, how do I work with my compute framework? Because it is very likely that you wouldn't have necessary compute resources on your laptop. Now, if that sort of like ends up being a Kubernetes cluster, then is there an expectation that uh, you're also an expert in Kubernetes? Or if your data <laughs> right. lives in some sort of like object store, then how do you figure out what is the best way to store that data, access that data, make sure that you know your GPUs are forever engaged? And how do you operate in, let's say, large teams of data scientists? How do you think about reproducibility as a first-class concern? So there's sort of like this value of complexity that presents itself Yeah, that can be quite bothersome and can also result in loss of significant productivity in data science teams. And that's basically what Metaflow is aiming to solve. So the goal, the philosophical goal with Metaflow is that we want to take care of all of these problems that a data scientist does not enjoy tackling, as well as at the same time preserve their freedom of choice, their freedom of exploration, to uh, experiment freely uh, in areas that they really like uh, to dabble in, right? We don't want to have opinions on our side that how people should be thinking about machine learning or how people should be thinking about uh, deconstructing their problem. But of course, we want to take away the pain of managing your compute environments, managing your data platform, yeah. uh, managing all the small little pain points uh, that sort of like occur on a day-to-day -day basis. So that's, that's basically what Metaflow is in a nutshell. And then there's just a lot of like details that, that you go into and in not only the video that you did at SciPy that we discussed mm -hmm. in quite a lot of detail. We talked about all these sort of uh, additional value added things that are in this platform and the platform's only grown and gotten better. And one of the big ones that we focused on was this idea of snapshots, which is a really kind of fantastic idea that a lot of other platforms that I don't really hear that term, which is really kind of neat, this idea of being able to look at how things were set up and have this sort of consistency, this idea of being able to move from a laptop 
to a Kubernetes cluster or whatever, mm-hmm. or all the steps kind of in between uh, the sort of reproducibility. So there's a lot of kind of really neat things. If you're thinking about infrastructure, it's a really great open source solution for that and kind of building it up. So I was very impressed with that. I had um, Calvin uh, Hendricks Parker on to talk about Apache Airflow. And we talked about, is it uh, directed acyclic graphs, DAGs? I don't know if I got that exactly right. Mm -hmm. But um, this idea of a tool like that, of creating these workflows. But again, a tool like that is only one of the components that's there. And the idea of Metaflow is really to kind of glue all of those kind of pieces together in, in, in a lot of ways. And so what I thought we could build on top of it, uh, kind of talk about is these updates and mm-hmm. how software has been changing uh, so much inside of Python. You know, Python itself as a language is on an annual cycle. Uh, I just did an episode where I talked about NumPy version 2 coming along, uh, which is going to shake up a lot of people's uh, projects potentially, um, which will be interesting. And so one of the things that you have been sort of thinking about tackling in this idea of reproducibility is, well, how, how how can people that want to look at recreating these projects, you know, how can they kind of deal with it? And it sounds like you kind of been attacking it from a couple different angles. So maybe we can talk about it. The the other kind of neat thing that I like about the platform is uh, I'm a big fan of decorators and it seems like you you are too, <laughs> at least as a platform. <laughs> and so there's always kind of like new decorators that have been added to the platform that kind of uh, highlight mm-hmm. a lot of these features. And so so maybe you can tell people about the, maybe we start with the, the Conda decorator and then we've talked more about the, mm-hmm. the PyPI decorator and uh, sure. what, what they're trying to solve. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, you know, you can imagine reproducibility is a big uh, theme in the world of machine learning. And usually when people think about reproducibility, it's more from the angle of, I have achieved certain results and I want to be reliably able to reproduce those exact same results. And of course, that enforces a lot more trust in the validity of the results that you right. are publishing. It's crucial for science, right? <laughs> it's it's crucial for science, but it's also equally crucial for maintaining these machine learning systems. Okay. Right. Imagine if let's say things are not behaving as expected, if you cannot reliably reproduce that errant behavior either, then it becomes uh, a rather non-trivial effort to diagnose what the issue is and let alone sort of like go about fixing it. So reproducibility sort of like cuts both ways. So when you are getting expected results, of course, you know, it enforces your trust in those results. But when things happen out of the ordinary, then it also helps you figure out what really went wrong. And Now, on that part, there are a few ingredients to reproducibility, right? Of course, there's sort of like the code that a data scientist is authoring, and that's something that's automatically snapshotted by Metaflow uh, so that you can walk back in time and look at any code that resulted in the generation of any kind of model or any kind of data set within the platform. Then uh, the second thing is just having a thorough understanding of what was the configuration of the platform, uh, what were the compute resources that were used, what were the inputs and the outputs, and being able to snapshot that intermediate state so that you can not only know what resulted in this current state, but you're also able to walk through your executions or you're able to uh, rerun 
your uh, past executions to achieve the exact same output. Uh, so it's sort of like you know a combination of two things: being able to snapshot the state as well as being in a position where it's almost trivial to re-execute from that captured snapshot. Now, one important ingredient in this captured snapshot is uh, your third-party dependencies. Uh, as you can imagine, uh, anytime you're doing any kind of processing, it is very likely that you are relying on code written by other people, predominantly in the form of other packages. And now in the machine learning universe, these packages oftentimes have a Pythonic interface, but behind the scenes, they may be relying on other non-Pythonic libraries. Yeah, we talk about that a lot these days with Rust and C and, and, and so forth because of the speed with it. And there's also new sort of challengers have entered the ring <laughs> recently exactly. so exactly exactly and in that particular universe you can imagine now for a data scientist it becomes incredibly important to be able to specify what kind of dependencies do they want to uh, bring along their code and execute it rather rapidly? And there have been like, you know, a bunch of projects in the space. I mean, I think Docker containers are sort of like you know, a big one here where people can go ahead and create these sort of like Docker files, slap their code inside, and then sort of like expect things to execute in a reliable manner uh, somewhat. But right. one of the big issues with authoring a Docker file is that it demands too much from a data scientist. <laughs> uh, you also then have to figure yeah. out where exactly is that Docker file going to live? Uh, where exactly is that Docker image going to live? How do you actually create these Docker images in the first place? Right. And that can inhibit your pace of uh, iteration quite a bit, right? Especially if you're, let's say, at the earlier stages of building your model and you're trying to still figure out that, okay, what is the right version of PyTorch should I be using or what is the right version of this library or that library? You want to be able to experiment quite freely. And if, let's say, your development loop uh, is all about, let me bake a new Docker image, try it out, if something is wrong, then I'll create yet another Docker image and then sort of like run my entire workload again on top of it. That can be slow at times. Yeah. So what we provide within Metaflow is this library of decorators. So at Conda is one, at PyP is yet another decorator, where within every step of your DAG, and we can sort of like talk more about DAGs in a bit, but within every step in your DAG, you can associate library dependencies. And these library dependencies can come from the Conda universe, or these library dependencies can come from the PyP universe. Um, the reason why we offer the Conda universe is because Conda takes care of both your Pythonic and non-Pythonic dependencies, which is going to be the case if you are doing anything related to machine learning. But oftentimes, we do come across scenarios where people have packages that are only available in PyPy, so being able to sort of like mix and match uh, these pip and conda packages sort of like you know is really useful. And what we end up doing behind the scenes is we'll create the environment on the fly, we'll capture it, we'll snapshot all the individual packages, Metaflow will store those behind the scenes for you. And whenever you are running any workload, whether it's on your laptop, whether it's on your colleague's laptop, whether it's in the cloud somewhere, whether it's a Kubernetes cluster or an HPC cluster, then we are able to very rapidly recreate the exact same environment for the user without them having to become an expert in Docker. Uh, so that's basically the functionality that we offer with these two decorators. Yeah, I think about Docker having trying to teach yourself everything. <laughs> Back when you're like learning Python, you're like, oh, and if you want to do a certain amount of stuff, you're going to need to learn this whole platform of setting things up 
and the advantage in some ways was the idea that it could be hosted in different places, which is kind of neat, this sort of a portability of this container. But Mm -hmm. learning, okay, I need to learn a new markup language. I need to learn this thing. I need to learn all these sort of configuration tips and tricks and security. Okay, I need to know that. Um, (laughs) And so there's a lot to it. So you're right, that, that, that ends up being quite a bit and so I, I like that idea. That's really kind of neat, this idea of sort of, you know, abstracting it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Maybe we could talk a little bit about that. I would feel some people might not be aware uh, if you are maybe more on a Pythonic side as opposed to a data science side of what's available in, in Conda and PyPI. I know that I should just have a whole show on it. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um, my experience is that the on the Conda side, you're getting a lot of these larger, almost collective packages. Uh, mm-hmm. If you've ever tried to set up PyTorch on your own personal computer, you may have struggled, uh, depending on the operating system that you have. Um, you may have tried to use it with a version of Python that it wasn't supported in, and so you might have gone through hurdles. A, a pretty common theme that I do every couple weeks is I download a project and want to talk about it on the show. And so it's really nice if I can run that project. And if it's an elaborate data science type project, just me going through the machinations of like setting it up and not just simply, oh, I just want to pip install it from PyPI or, or whatever. It's it's a lot. And so the Conda environments are usually more complex. Would you agree that they have a lot more potential scope we mentioned that they might have rust or c or other kinds of packages involved sometimes they even have data with them Mm -hmm. and like i said i i'm in and out of that world a a lot uh, and talking about it but what's nice about this is more than simply making a uh, requirements.txt file Mm -hmm. to say i want to reproduce this thing and maybe potentially you know like we we're joking about NumPy just a minute ago, uh, having the uh, NumPy less than 2.0 uh, <laughs> in your uh, requirements designation there to make sure it doesn't, you know, accidentally install that. What are, there's there's even another layer there that is kind of important of like, we've talked about a little bit on the show of lock files, this idea of like, you know, mm-hmm. specifying this very, very specific version, not only for, making sure that the code runs properly, but also for the sort of security in a way too, and making sure that this is a, the authentic one that, from the source where I got it. And so this is all kind of included there? Yes, yes. I mean, you know, software supply chain is definitely a big topic. Yeah. And I think the security implications of that are going to be a lot more important going forward for the world of machine learning too. So now when we think about Conda, it can mean one of many things. Uh, so there's the universe of virtual environments. So you can create a virtual environment through VN. You can also create a virtual environment through Conda, for example. Yeah. You can create, in many ways, a virtual execution environment like containers. Linux containers are also uh, a similar concept, uh, with all providing varying different levels of granularity. Now, one benefit with running, let's say, a virtual environment through Conda is that uh, you can run that inside a Docker container. Yeah. Versus, let's say, you know, if your authoring experience already is a Docker container, which many cloud IDEs sort of like provide, then being able to run yet another Docker container within that Docker container is usually uh, not really feasible. 
but you can always just create a brand new Conda virtual environment. And that's usually a lot more straightforward to do. So that's sort of like one big benefit. Also, you're able to virtualize Python. Uh, so on a single system, you can have different versions of Python as well. I think you know, newer versions of Python come out ever so often. And if you just want to, let's say, even benchmark different performance profiles across different versions of Python, that becomes easy. So there's that universe of virtual ends that Metaflow will create on your behalf. So that's one thing. Okay. Then the next thing is, um, where exactly are these packages coming from? So that's yet another connotation when people use the term Conda. So in this case, you know, all of these packages are coming from Conda repositories. And in the Conda universe, repositories are called channels. And you have many of those, there's Conda Forge. They're like uh, Conda channels related to packages in the biology world as well. So we are able to use these package managers, Conda, Micromamba, Mamba as well, and uh, I think uh, Wolf's team is working on this new project called Rattler, uh, which is an implementation of Mamba and Rust, to create these environments on the fly very rapidly. Now, one big issue is that the exact nature of these environments is very temporal in nature. So if you, let's say, fix your version of PyTorch and try to install PyTorch today uh, versus if you install PyTorch tomorrow, it's still likely that you'll get different sets of transitive dependencies because there may be certain other dependencies that are still floating. And that's where the concept of uh, having a lock file becomes really important. And Metaflow will automatically create a lock file for you behind the scenes so you don't have to worry about that. And it will also snapshot all of these individual packages in the blob store for you. So even if, let's say, tomorrow... I don't think it's a possibility that will happen, but if for whatever reason PyTorch is no longer available in open source, somehow somebody just goes in and deletes that package, that package is still available inside your uh, blob store. So all your workflows will still continue to behave as before. Uh, You're not sort of like at the mercy of the availability of any upstream repository at that particular point. And conceptually what we are doing is we are just generating that thin top level uh, docker image layer and we are just shipping that around depending on where you are executing if you're executing on your laptop or inside another docker container then we just download that image and then that image layer and then we just uh, switch over to the python interpreter in that layer and execute that user code behind that so that sort of like you know then enables a whole bunch of benefits that I just spoke about here Building AI apps comes with a lot of challenges. Many developers rely on open source code and software to jumpstart work. If you're building an AI app, save time and effort by visiting intel.com slash edge AI. Here you can get open source code snippets and sample apps for a head start on your app. Intel.com slash edge AI gives you access to real-world AI applications that can help you accelerate and optimize your models and deploy faster. You can also tap into GitHub notebooks for a range of applications from computer vision to generative AI. Check it out at intel.com slash edge AI. Yeah, so when you mentioned this blob store, maybe we could talk about that briefly, like what is being included there is it is it an entire copy of the libraries and the dependencies or is it more uh, just 
lock files to make sure that it downloads the the appropriate locked versions of all the very very specific uh, in time <laughs> versions of these things. So, like, what's the difference there? Yeah, yeah. So, what we store are uh, the lock files that point to individual packages that are also stored in okay. the Blob Store. Okay. And the Blob yeah. Store is stored where? It could be a cloud Blob Store like uh, Amazon's S3, Google's GCS, Azure's Blob Store. Okay. Could be MinIO. Um, so, totally up to people's preference. This is part of you setting up Metaflow then to sort of indicate where you want these. I don't want to call them <laughs> meta files, but I don't know what else to call them. But they're like these additional files that have to do with the infrastructure of Metaflow to save the snapshots, to save these other, you know, sort of indicators. Am, am I right in describing that? Yes. So the very basic infrastructure requirements that Metaflow has are uh, rather minimal. Okay. If you want, let's say, all of this caching, snapshotting functionality, so by default, if you just pip install Metaflow today, then it will cache everything on your local file system. But if you configure Metaflow to use, let's say, an Amazon S3 bucket, so if you provided the credentials as well as the name of the bucket, then all of this data would be stored in that S3 bucket. Now, these lock files are uh, already part of the code package. So we snapshot the user code, and when we are snapshotting the user code for the execution, at that particular point, we also store that lock file. And then all the packages are stored globally once for uh, an entire organization. So you don't sort of like pay the cost of uploading this package over and over again. It's sort of like just a one-time activity uh, if, let's say, that package for whatever reason does not already exist in that block store. It's interesting because it feels like there might be some friction in an organization getting used to this workflow because of what they've been doing up to now. They're like, okay, but all my code is in Git and all my dependencies are done through poetry and um, <laughs> all these sorts of things. And is it is it still like you would want those things happening also, like a belt and sub- suspenders kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, none of these things replace any kind of existing engineering process that an organization would have. Okay. Right? So we are snapshotting code because we want to provide reproducibility so that you can, let's say, answer this very basic question that, hey, I had this person on my team who six months ago trained this model. I want to figure out what was the code that resulted in the generation of that model. I want to re-execute that code using the dependencies that that person was using at that particular point in time. So give me sort of like that entire execution context. So we'll be able to provide you that. Now, if in addition to that, you also wanted to store that code in your Git repository and have sort of like an entire CI CD process, of course, all of that still applies. This is an internal implementation detail of Metaflow that just sort of like, you know, uh, enables some extra set of features. Okay, so best practice is to still keep doing all of those things. And this is this kind of unique situation where you can do what you're talking about like that that sounds fa- fantastic if <laughs> somebody took a job somewhere else and you're like okay well what were they doing <laughs> you know exactly. or something happens right and the problem with yeah yeah the problem with best practices is that they are very rarely enforced right so imagine if let's say you are a data scientist and every single time you're let's say executing some script to train your model the expectation is that without fail you are going to uh, create a git commit 
and uh, everything will be explicitly cataloged. That, that sort of like, you know, just introduces yet another uh, cognitive tax right. uh, on the individual yeah. versus, let's say, yes, you know, of course, it's a best practice that you should be cataloging everything rather explicitly. But then there is an implicit cataloging that also happens without fail that you can always rely on. Uh, there are certain guarantees that the infrastructure provides that are not reliant on the user taking certain specific actions that's that's a big win you can imagine there have been innumerable times this has happened both back uh, during my time at netflix as well as sort of like you know working with many customers at outer bounds where people want to know something went wrong what were the exact packages that were used to generate a specific model or maybe there is some security vulnerability and they want to triage every single model that was generated through some certain package just even understanding that yes you know this is a capability that somebody would need uh, expecting a data science team to build keeping that perspective in mind uh, can be a big ask and uh, usually the expectation yeah. sort of like you know falls on like hey the platform should automatically offer this thing for free okay question on the snapshotting mm-hmm. when does it happen like is it it sounds like an opportune time is like the the moment that you run something it's like okay mm-hmm. during this process now i'm going to go ahead and grab it in fact there's a kind of another new feature that maybe this would bleed into this idea of these cards where you can kind of see the processes of things running that kind of maybe go beyond what you'd see in like a command line environment. Maybe we could talk about that a little bit, but I'm just kind of wondering like, okay, when does this, uh, you know, these versions of the snapshotting happen? Yeah. I mean, anytime you're running any workload, okay, uh, we would want to snapshot it right before executing that workload. Okay. Yeah. I mean, one simple thing uh, here is, you know, imagine, and I'm pretty sure like many data scientists who might be listening to this show would have run into the same problem where something either works or maybe it fails on their laptop, but nobody else is able to reproduce that exact same execution environment. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting thing. Very cool. Like the very reproducibility of the problems. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Well, how was it configured? And you're like scratching your head. I don't know. And it's like, well, this will have uh, an exact snapshot. Okay, cool. Exactly. And, you know, just just with sort of like a few clicks, you're able to get the exact same code. You, You can run it again, and you're guaranteed that you have the exact same execution environment that your coworker had. So you can sort of like, you know, if the thing worked, then it should work for you. If the thing fails, then it should fail on you as well. I have kind of a related question there that has to do with scaling back to this idea. And we've talked about it already, you know, definitely the first time you're here where we were like talking about, okay, this person starts out on a notebook or laptop and they're creating this project and now they do want to move it into this larger environment. I think we've touched on some of the special considerations, but are there things that they need to keep in mind is like, okay, what OS should they be using or or should they be looking at unique builds of a particular library uh, that they need to keep in mind? Are there are those types of considerations they need to be looking at? Yeah, it's, it's an excellent question. And I think it's also, you know, one of the most important but overlooked detail. You can imagine, I mean, Macs are, rather popular as developer environments and it's likely that if you're running something in the cloud then you would be running on maybe sort of like a box that's running uh, 
Linux or some flavor of it, or maybe it's some custom architecture. Maybe it has GPUs attached. Maybe it's like you know TPUs or something else, and uh, that's a different architecture all along. And now a big question is, what packages should I be using? What uh, builds I should be using? And th- those are details that can flummox uh, even the most sophisticated of engineers and data scientists, right? And those are not the details that you would nominally expect a data scientist should be spending hours and hours of their uh, working day towards. I mean, data science, it's its a very deep expertise. It's also very lucratively paid. And as an organization, I wouldn't want my data scientists to bang their head against a problem uh, that should not exist (laughs) in the first place. So one of the things that we do behind the scenes is we automatically figure out what are the right build packages, what are the right architectures for which we need to create uh, these environments for, and then we ship those around. Okay. Uh, So those multi-platform, multi-architecture environment support is something that just comes out of the box. So you can be running on, let's say, a Mac machine and pushing your workloads on top of TPUs, on top of ARM architecture instances, on top of Linux instances, and we'll figure out behind the scenes what are the right set of packages and how to actually go ahead and create those environments for you, as well as keep them reproducible. So I could kind of see that as far as outer bounds helping with that, because that's a service that you're providing in there. If someone's using vanilla Metaflow itself and trying to structure some of these things themselves are they are is that sort of uh scaling if you will for a really limited use of the word (laughs) does that is that part of it because i feel like it's like you know this sort of picking from a menu like okay well which direction do we want it to go from is it covering both sides of that like you know the hosted versus the other version yeah, so I think there are two things, right? So when it comes to figuring out intelligently what packages should I be actually pulling down, yeah. that's a Metaflow open source feature. So that's that's available to everyone. That's available to Autobahn's customers. That's available to anybody who's using Metaflow. Now, this also brings a rather interesting question here uh, as a follow-up, which is, I'm running certain workloads. Now, machine learning can be rather expensive from a compute footprint point of view. And it makes a lot of sense to optimize your compute instances. Many times it could mean that, hey, am I running workloads that are just suboptimal on a given instance type? Should I be changing that? Or should I be rewriting my workflows so that uh, I can actually use or I can actually access all the raw compute part that I have provisioned for myself? And in that particular universe, we have uh, you know one of the features that you highlighted cards that sort of like comes in handy to get sort of like more deeper and fine-tuned observability into the performance of your uh, training workloads or your inference workloads so that you can make that determination all by yourself. Okay. And then within Outer Bounds, we provide sort of like an intelligent form uh, of this feature where we can figure out what are the right instance types for people to run their training workloads on so that we can reduce their costs even further uh, in an autonomous manner. Okay. So... I'm still a little fuzzy in the sense of, mm-hmm. again, going for like a, a company that's not using Outer Bounds or using the open source Metaflow. And it's, is it suggesting these avenues uh, that could potentially, it could run this code with this, you know, this architecture? Or is it one of these things where 
you have to kind of plan for it and it's going to help you get those particular packages mm-hmm. in the process of of setting it all up. I, that's kind of where I'm wondering, like, where where is it? Where's the assistance happening? Yeah, yeah. So now, if let's say when you are using open source Metaflow and you want to run a workload, then you have to also specify where exactly is that workload going to execute? Is it going to execute on your local laptop? Or is it going to execute somewhere in the cloud? Right. And because we understand when we are running on your laptop what architecture that is, as well as we have an understanding of what that remote cloud computing platform is going to be, we can make the determination that uh, what is the architecture, what is the platform that that workload is going to run on, and then make sure that the right packages are made available uh, for that workload. So all of that happens on the open source side. Yeah, you have uh, provisioned these resources and either you're running it locally on, on you know whatever your machine has as far as resources or you provision these other things in the cloud and it it knows what that infrastructure is and can grab the appropriate stuff for it yes exactly this week i want to shine a spotlight on another real python video course and it's titled everyday project packaging with pi project Tommel. in this code conversation you'll follow a chat between ian curry and Gerarna Hiela, demonstrating the relatively new, officially sanctioned way of setting up your Python projects using a PyProjectToml file and installing your package with pip. This technique has a good set of benefits, such as being able to call your project from anywhere, playing on the same team as the import system, and allowing for consistent imports along with having one file that'll work for many build systems. Along the way, you learn about structuring files and folders in your project, understanding different ways to run your script, exploring how the import system works, along with exploring the Python packaging world. You'll write a Python project TOML file to configure your package and learn how to install that package with pip. You'll also dive into the various rabbit holes along the way as Ian and Gerarna talk about the aspects of the process. Real Python video courses are broken into easily consumable sections and where needed, include code examples for the techniques shown. All lessons have a transcript, including closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the enhanced search tool on realpython.com. We touched on cards a couple times. Maybe we could describe them and uh, what what that change was, like uh, you know how mm-hmm. how they've improved it. You have kind of a, a few videos and some links, and I'll, I'll include those in here. What's the idea behind cards and how, how is it helping out with the platform and observability, if you will? Yeah, yeah. So monitoring and observability, I mean, of course, that's a big question uh, always, uh, especially in the world of machine learning. But depending on who you ask, uh, their understanding of what exactly monitoring means or what exactly observability means can vary significantly. Yeah. So, of course, you know, being able to monitor the performance of certain statistical metrics for your training workload comes under the definition of monitoring. Being able to understand uh, what is the utilization rate of your GPU is also uh, under the purview of monitoring. Being able to track how some of your business metrics are moving is yet another definition of monitoring. and. Another aspect here, which is kind of like orthogonal, but somewhat related, is how you would want to visualize 
these things that you want to monitor. And that can also be highly context dependent. That can be dependent on uh, who is the end consumer. Of course, you do not want to send AUC scores to your uh, product manager or your CEO. Uh, What they care about would be very different than what, let's say, a data scientist would care about. And cards are an effort where we basically provide this capability to data scientists that they can, with just a few lines of Python code, create these custom visualizations that live alongside uh, all of their models uh, that get refreshed automatically whenever uh, there's any new execution of the workload. And of course, everything is snapshotted. You can go back in time and you can look at sort of like prior executions of all of these cards as well to effectively monitor these workloads across this entire sort of like wide spectrum. Yeah. And one functionality that or like one enhancement that we released very recently was this notion of dynamic cards so up until very recently these cards were actually generated once your workload had finished execution so you could sort of like monitor or you could look at the card once everything was done and now these cards will start rendering much sooner so you can have these dynamic cards that sort of like auto update with fresh information as and when that sort of like comes along so if you have a rather uh, large, let's say, distributed training run that you want to monitor and maybe it's going to take days or weeks and you want to keep a tight eye on how quickly is the model converging or what is the actual overall uh, infrastructure utilization rate, you can very easily create these cards and attach it to any of your workloads and start monitoring those. So that's basically is the thinking behind this feature. I feel very often in this sort of environment of, of running large data science projects that often it was just hit a button and wait (laughs) and you weren't getting a lot of observability unless you had designed a lot of it yourself so this is maybe simplifying some of that where you can say okay you can show the progress of you know the, the data being loaded this the model being created you know all the different sort of variations of things and so you can kind of get these in some ways simple progress bars but also like you know, the the activity monitor, if you will, <laughs> of what's happening with yep. all this infrastructure that isn't necessarily on your, you know, local laptop, which uh, is neat. I, I like that idea because I've seen people, you know, try to optimize things and it's like such a rabbit hole that you can go down and you can't really tell what's happening where unless you add lots of other sort of infrastructure on top of it. And we've talked about that, like memory and these other kinds of tools to like dig into that and you kind of become a a bit of a specialist then and this is maybe at a level that you don't have to be quite Mm -hmm. that level of a specialist to at least get an idea what's happening with it and then maybe you could maybe bring somebody in who's you know great at optimizing or whatever and could help you with it but it's interesting that way how long have you guys been at working on the cards thing so I think the first release of cards was maybe 18 months ago. And then uh, the recent one okay. is like a few months worth of effort on our part. But I think, yeah, you, you've raised sort of like, you know, a great point that I think what a lot of people forget is for machine learning. I mean, it's it's science at the end of the day, right? So when right. you get started on the project, you have no idea what shape or size it 
is going to take. Uh, is it going to be a dead end or is it going to be a stellar success for the business? So optimizing for that pace of iteration becomes really important. And once you know what the end goal is, then of course, then the next sort of like hurdle comes across, which is like, okay, how quickly can you productionize those things? And that's been our emphasis with cards and many other features as well, that how do we make sure that we can provide more power to the data scientist? So in many ways, they can become a full stack data scientist without actually understanding or like going sort of like, you know, super deep into specific technologies around its observability or like, you know, compute. But then also ensure that their finished product is as close to a production grade product as is possible so that then you don't have to again engage in any kind of busy work to translate all your research ideas into something that is sort of like production worthy. Yeah. One of the things that we've talked now kind of going back and forth between these different environments of hosting, you know, something locally, setting it up, and then moving it. And then you mentioned briefly the idea of of GPUs being involved in this whole process. And it's kind of a weird, mad rush right now for <laughs> GPUs. <laughs> like if, if you read any of the news about what Meta is trying to do, like literally gobbling up the supply of them. So I could see how different infrastructures and depending on the, you know, the companies are, they're looking for this power because that's, you know, that's what this stuff runs on the fastest in general, as far as these types of workloads. Are there things that you guys as a team have looked at to try to help in, in that sort of a struggle to uh, get as much as people possibly can out of the GPUs they have? Yeah. Yeah. So they're like, so we have efforts across a few different dimensions. So you can imagine right now GPU availability uh, is rather constricted. Yeah. So we definitely want to make sure that people can make the most uh, out of whatever GPU resources they have available. So for SCART help and monitoring, whether you are making optimum use of their GPUs, and then we have many other profiling related features as well that allow you to uh, eke out just like, you know, maximum uh, performance out of these. So that's one. But many times people have willingness to pay for GPUs, but they just aren't allocated any kind of availability by their primary cloud vendor. And that forces them to look elsewhere. Uh, and that elsewhere could be yet another cloud. It could be a specialized GPU cloud, or it could be just like, you know, investing in some limited on-prem resources as well. And at the end of the day, if you have to train a model, you have to train a model. There isn't sort of like any two-way around it. <laughs> you need to get it but, done. <laughs> yeah, you need to get it done. But one of the big hurdles that then it presents itself is that now your data scientist has to contend with infrastructure that's split across two different providers of compute capacity. Oh, okay. yeah. And that's one functionality that we have worked on solving within Metaflow and Outer Bounds. So uh, Metaflow, as you know, now works across all popular clouds. Uh, so we have significant adopters, including folks at Amazon and AWS who use Metaflow to power uh, their prime video recommendations as well as their e-commerce recommendations. We have uh, users across GCP, Azure, uh, Oracle Cloud as well. Uh, companies in the Gen AI space like Adept have been using us across Oracle as well as their on-prem infrastructure. And 
Off late, what we have also focused on is introducing capability where you can combine resources from two different clouds. So imagine if you are on, let's say, AWS, but for whatever reason, you cannot get access to H100s, but Azure is able to provide you that capability. Then behind the scenes, we can construct a compute fabric that is composed of compute instances, both from AWS and Azure, and seamlessly migrate your workloads across these clouds, while the end user doesn't really have to care where exactly that workload is running. Of course, there are sort of like open questions that come in uh, with the economics of data migration. If you're moving data from one cloud to the other, that can be rather expensive. But in many use cases, especially let's say fine-tuning related use cases, you can actually uh, get a lot done with this sort of an approach. That's funny. Yeah, we got an appointment this Thursday. Um, they have an opening <laughs> to, to run our stuff here. Uh, but I can imagine that if you're, you know, like, uh, yeah, there's the idea of creating these large language models or other types of models and so forth. There's, a, you know, timelines that need to be met. And yeah, that's interesting. So that that's cool. So it, it's something where th- there's some flexibility in there that you can kind of point this existing thing toward this new stack, if you will. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, you can you can point this new thing without your data scientist being bogged down by the detail. Okay. That's, and I think that sort of like, you know, again, harkens back to your first question that, okay, what is human friendly? And we don't <laughs> yeah. want the data scientist to be exposed to this fact that, you know, where exactly sort of like the state of GPU economics are. Right. Well, I, we talked a lot about it in our first conversation about this, and you've already mentioned it before, just briefly, the idea of how much is the time of the data scientists waiting around to to make things happen versus the cost of infrastructure. And, you know, it's real mixed right now (laughs) as far as that goes, but it almost, in almost all cases, the, you know, someone waiting for something to happen or, or, uh, having to learn all of these other types of things that they don't specialize in, they could, potentially look at the savings there. So one of the example stories that I I liked that you had at the end of the SciPy conversation, just to kind of reiterate this idea of what we're talking about, the environments and the the idea of snapshots and so forth, was the story of, and it was an intern at Netflix, is that right? Yes. Okay. Do you want to tell that story real quick? Just so we kind of reiterate that idea. I I just thought it was a, a great anecdote. Yeah, so this was about um, an intern who had come back to Netflix for another internship. Uh, This intern was in our data science group. And if memory serves me right, they were working with, uh, I believe, the package TF datasets. Okay. And you can imagine many of these machine learning packages, uh, they move forward at a very rapid pace. So it is very well expected that what worked, let's say, a year ago uh, may not work today because their transitive dependencies would have changed. And you can't just like, you know, close your eyes and just like upgrade all of these packages. There are going to be numerous breaking changes as well. Right. So this in turn had a project. It was a very successful project that they had sort of like worked on and uh, was working really well for them and then they left Netflix and then came back exactly a year later and then they tried to sort of like pick it back up and of course you can imagine as soon as you let's say start running a workload with the exact same set of package dependencies things are not going to work because not only has the outside world changed in many ways the world inside Netflix had also changed right like the base OSs that we were running for our compute platform any other clients that we were running all of those things had sort of like moved forward and that then resulted in them spending 
close to two weeks trying to get their internal developer environment working yet again. And keep in mind that this intern was only at Netflix for 16 weeks or maybe even sort of okay. like less than that, right? So maybe sort of like 12 to 15% of their time was just spent on trying to figure out how do I get to the same state that I left a year ago. Yeah, where I was working before, yeah. Exactly. And at the same time, they did have other workflows they had written using the exact same uh, dependencies through Metaflow, which they were able to just like pick back up and start executing on. So they were sort of like, you know, in this uh, paradigm where some of the work that they had done within Metaflow, they were able to start making quick progress on top of it. At the same time, some other work that was using the exact same set of dependencies that they were relying on, but wasn't uh, written using Metaflow, they had sort of like significant delay in getting uh, <laughs> it back to a working state. Yeah, it's like coming back from a summer vacation yourself, you know? Exactly, exactly. And we see that happen quite a bit. And I don't think this is sort of like a unique situation that this person found themselves in. Uh, I think this is something that, you know, even as a software engineer, I have run into it and like many other areas as well. Yeah, or you get a new Mac. And suddenly they yeah. uh, use these M processors. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and nothing I mean, supports I, them. <laughs> I exactly. And uh, I think that's also one of the big reasons why I'm also strongly bullish on uh, this concept of cloud workstations or cloud IDs. Yeah. That if we can, let's say, just move your laptop into the cloud where there's a lot more predictability, where uh, change management is a lot more simpler and easier, uh, that can also take care of many of these issues. Yeah, cool. So, Savin, I have these weekly questions I like to ask everybody. And the first one is, what are you excited about in the world of Python right now? Good question. Uh, many things, to be honest. I think we are definitely seeing a renewed interest in making Python enterprise grade. So you can imagine, I mean, of course, we are trying to solve this problem of dependency management or software supply chain yeah. within Metaflow. But of course, there's an entire ecosystem outside of Metaflow, but still within the realm of data science. And uh, I'm excited to see sort of like, you know, new companies getting funded in the space as well, which is sort of like always a healthy sign. Um, there are companies like Prefix and many others who are sort of like building net new projects uh, in the space. So that's super exciting. Yeah. Also excited about uh, people trying to push the front years of performance, either within Python or sort of like, you know, by uh, creating new packages, but with still sort of like a Pythonic interface or still keeping themselves true to the usability paradigm uh, that Python sort of like very strongly tries to enforce. So those those are few things that keep me super excited. Yeah, yeah. I think we are definitely trending in the right direction and the momentum just keeps on increasing uh, every passing year. Yeah, I think it's incredible that the PSF has gotten funding to have developers and residents, multiple across not only Python itself and addressing this sort of, I, I don't know where they're at as far as the backlog of, of issues, but I know that it, it's got to be at least looking better. And then they have have two people that I've talked to about you know the security stuff and working in PyPI and uh, thinking about just general developer uh, security and so forth. So yeah, it's a lot, a lot of focus. And so I, I appreciate that the there is some funding and some focus. I agree with you on that. Nice. Yeah. What's something that you want to learn next? Again, this doesn't have to be Python. It could be uh, something outside the realm of programming. I 
guess just like better time management to be honest <laughs> i think uh, the sure. last sort of like couple of years um, have been an interesting joyride uh, so i used to be at netflix left netflix to start out of bounds and uh, being on the entrepreneurial journey uh, stretches you in many different directions uh, so of course there's sort of like you know this constant uh, i wouldn't use the word struggle but a constant effort to just be better at time management and prioritizing things effectively yeah i don't think uh, anybody can ever sort of like get into a state where they feel strongly confident that they have everything under control so i think i'm on the same journey there too <laughs> do you look at uh, systems like uh getting things done or you know some of these existing frameworks if you will behind that i i i never got far into it but i followed a lot of uh I don't know, quote unquote, internet gurus on this stuff. And it was, it was intriguing a subject to follow uh, to, cause it was sort of technology adjacent, you know, kind of looking mm-hmm. at uh, different things like that, but I, I'm not uh, into it as much anymore, but I, I definitely have a, uh, got a copy of the book and stuff but <laughs> <laughs> yeah no I've, i mean i've looked into many of these systems uh and many of these recommendations as well but like while i was growing up as well uh there was a habit that i developed that has kept me uh, quite organized so i usually start off my day with just creating a quick checklist of everything that needs to be done oh, okay and uh, that checklist is always uh, using a pen on a paper and then as the day goes by i get the psychological joy of striking those things off <laughs> uh, so which which is really good <laughs> yeah that makes sense nice what's the best way that somebody can follow the work that you do online uh yeah um, i mean I'm on Twitter, but I really post there. Um, okay. A good way to follow the work that uh, I'm doing or my team is doing uh, would be to connect with me on LinkedIn, uh, to be honest. Uh, we post okay. frequent updates around how the project is doing, any interesting stories that we have to share over there. So, yeah, please feel free to reach out anytime. Yeah, it seems like you have a fairly active uh, blog at, on Metaflow also. Yes, yes. So, uh, Metaflow.org, right? Okay. Yes. Uh, so, there's, uh, so Metaflow.org captures all the latest updates, and then uh, most of the long pieces of content, they go on the Outer Bounds blog. So that okay. could be yet another place for people to look at. All right. I'll make sure to include that. Great. Well, Simon, thanks so much for coming on the show again. It was really great to talk to you. Thank you, Christopher. And remember, don't start building your AI app from scratch. Save time by visiting intel.com slash edge AI. Get open source code snippets and tools to jumpstart development and deploy faster. Go to intel.com slash edge AI. I want to thank Savin Goyle for coming back on the show this week. And I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player. And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, Remember that the Real Python podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com/podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.